You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. If you've got your Bibles there, please go ahead and open them up to uh, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And as you turn there, let me ask you, have you ever been absolutely convinced that you were right about something and then absolutely devastated because you were absolutely wrong. Has that ever happened to you? Hands up. Is that ever? Okay, good, good. Amen, men. Have you ever been in a place where you were driving somewhere and maybe you had some other voices in the car that were saying, we're going the wrong way, and you're like, no, we're going the right way, and then you find out you're totally going the wrong way. Ever happened to you? Just me? Okay. Have you ever thought that you completely understood something just to find out that you didn't understand it at all. If you're anything like me, you're like, yeah, that happens like all the time, right? Well, in Mark chapter 10, that's exactly what's happening to the disciples. They were absolutely convinced that they were right about something. They were absolutely convinced that they're going the right way. They thought they understood something fully in their understanding that they didn't understand it at all. And here's the thing they didn't understand, is what it means to be truly great. What it means to be truly great. Now consider for a moment how greatness was defined in the world in which the disciples lived. In 63 BC, the Roman Empire invaded and conquered and ruled over everything with total authority right up until AD 135. And everything was controlled. And everything was monitored. And those who violated Roman authority were dealt with harshly, with beatings and torture and executions, and all of it done publicly as a warning to everyone and a reminder of who is in charge and who is at the top and who should be feared. Therefore, the ones who were considered great in the Roman world, in the Gentile world, were those who were considered to be superior, the ones who had authority, the ones who got glory, the governors and the kings, and then ultimately the emperor himself. So it's no wonder then, it's no wonder in light of the world in which they lived that the disciples thought about greatness in very worldly terms. Now here's what worldly greatness looks like up on the screen. Worldly greatness, worldly green greatness, it looks like this. It looks like get superiority so that you can get authority so you can get glory. That's worldly greatness. Get superiority, be better than your neighbor so that you can get authority. You can have authority over your neighbor so that then you can get glory from your neighbor. And make no mistake about it, the disciples wanted this worldly green greatness. And how do we know? Well, we know because they were constantly arguing about it. They were constantly arguing about who was the greatest. They were constantly jockeying for position, seeking to be superior to one another. But listen, listen. Green, worldly greatness is about as far from true greatness as we can get because true greatness is not worldly green. True greatness is sacrificial red. True greatness is sacrificial red because this is what true greatness is. True greatness is a servant heart that is produced by the gospel. True greatness is a servant heart that is produced 
by the gospel. And a servant heart is produced by the gospel when the love of God in the gospel is received by faith day after day after day after day. A servant heart is produced by the gospel when the love of God in the gospel is received by faith day after day after day after day. Let me ask you, how much do you think God loves you? How much do you think God loves you? Because you could love someone with all your heart. You could love someone, you just feel like your heart is going to explode, you love them so much. But if they don't believe you, when you tell them how much you love them, and, if, and if, if they don't believe you when you show them how much you love them, then they won't truly receive that love and they won't feel loved. Likewise, the greatest need in this room this morning is that we would receive the love of God in the gospel by faith day after day after day after day. And so what is the love of God in the gospel? Well, essentially it's this. It's God the Father choosing to love you like he loves his son Jesus. It's God the Father choosing to love you like he loves his son Jesus. Maybe thinking, well, where do we see that in the Bible? Well, have a look. John chapter 17. Jesus said this. He's speaking to the Father. He says, You sent me and loved them. Now, who's the them? It's us. It's us. You sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Let the word of God sink in right now. God the Father loves you like he loves Jesus. And how much does God the Father love his son Jesus Christ? Infinitely infinitely. So how much does God the Father love you right now in your chair? Here's how much. Infinitely. He loves you infinitely, but do you believe it? God the Father, he, he, his love is perfect, and he has taken his perfect love, and he has set it upon you, not because of who you are, and not because of anything you've done or anything that you will do, but because he has desired to put the greatness and the awesomeness of his love on display. And so here's what he's chosen to do. He's chosen to set it upon you so that it might be seen by the entire universe. And that means, literally, that we have received the greatest gift in the universe. We are the recipients of the greatest gift in the universe, the perfect love of God. And when we see this, it humbles us like nothing else, and it satisfies our hearts like nothing else, and it transforms our hearts like nothing else, and it produces in us true greatness. Because this is what happens up on the screen. The love of God comes down to us in the form of the gospel. And we receive it by faith. We receive it day after day after day. The love of God comes down. And when that happens and it's received, then love goes 
up from us back to God. We love because he first, what? Loved us. Love comes down. It's received. Then it goes back up to God. And then love goes out from us to others in the form of service because we want to point them back to the God we love so much. Love comes down. Love goes up. And then love goes out from us in the form of service. And this, loved ones, is true greatness. It is a servant heart that is produced by the gospel. So before we get started, let's take a look at those two definitions of greatness up on the screen side by side together, and let's ask ourselves this, all right? Here they are. Ask yourself this. Which definition of greatness have you been pursuing in your life most up until this point this morning? Which definition of greatness have you been pursuing in your life? If you're going to be honest, up until this point this morning. Because the disciples in Mark chapter 10 desperately needed a paradigm shift in how they understood and thought about greatness. They needed to see that true greatness is not worldly green, but rather it is sacrificial red. And they needed to learn it before it was too late. And listen, listen, so do I. So do we. Which leads us right into our first point this morning. It's this, it's this. If I want to pursue true greatness, we can jot this down. If I want to pursue true greatness, I must recognize and resist the pursuit of self-glory. I must recognize and resist the pursuit of self-glory. Now let's have a look at Mark chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 35. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Here we go. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And so James and John, these are two of Jesus' disciples. They're in his inner circle. They're so close to Jesus. And they come to him with a request. And look, look at how they ask this request. Verse 35, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So very vague, isn't it? It's very vague. And this is how you would ask someone something if you're going to ask for something huge and you don't think they're, they're going to say yes. And so here's what you do. You ask them to say yes before you even ask the question. That's what's happening here. It's kind of like uh, a friend comes up to you and they say, hey, hey, uh, just say yes. And you're like, what? They're like, no, no, just, just say yes. Just, just say yes. And you're like, no. Like, no, just come on. Just say yes. Just say yes. And you're like, okay, fine. Yes. They're like, great, see you 6.30 Saturday morning. You can help me move. Thanks, man. So what do James and John want? Have a look at verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Okay. So as best we can, we need to try to feel the weight of what they're actually asking for here, okay? Because, because essentially they're asking Jesus, saying, Jesus, would you please make us second in importance in your kingdom? They're saying, they're saying Jesus, would you kind of make us second in command? Would you give us the seats of honor in your kingdom? Let me ask you, have you ever prayed for that? Is this, is this kind of making your prayer list in the morning? Uh, 
Please, God, make me second in command, second in importance. Please give me the seat of honor in your kingdom. Are you praying for that? I hope not. I hope not. Who are we to ask for such a thing? Who are we to ask to be elevated and exalted above all the other saints? But to more fully grasp the nature of this request, we have to look at it in context. So let's see what Jesus had just said to them before they asked this question. Have a look at verse 32. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, so he's on his own, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Now why is that? Why is Jesus walking alone, and why are they, some of them amazed and some of them afraid? Well, most likely, it is because Jesus already told them two times that he was going up to Jerusalem, and that's when he would be killed. And so some who are following him are like, he's, he's, he's going. Others are, what's going to happen now? Verse 32. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him. So now it's the third time, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. It's the gospel right there, isn't it? So Jesus is explaining to them again what's going to happen, that they're going to mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And again, this isn't the first time. This is now the third time that James and John have heard this. And after three times hearing this, what do they say? How do they respond? They say, hey, Jesus, just do do whatever we ask, okay? Just say yes. Give us the seats of honor in your kingdom. Think of it. Jesus Christ is about to give James and John the the greatest gift in the universe. He's about to wash them clean with his blood. He is about to rescue them from hell itself. He is about to give them eternal life so they could be with him forever. And they respond by saying, Jesus, give us glory. So clearly their hearts are fixed on this one thing, their own glory. The Savior of the world has just told them that he's about to be killed. And instead of falling on their face and grabbing his feet and worshiping him and loving him and adoring him, they're asking for glory for themselves. But before we're too hard on James and John, have a look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, who are the ten? They're the other disciples. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And so this conversation's happening over here with Jesus, James, and John. The other disciples are over here. They can clearly hear what's going on. They're like, what? Did you, did you hear that? And they were furious. They were enraged. Why? Because they wanted the same glory. It's just that James and John beat them to the punch and they were mad about it. All of the disciples had the same desire for self-glory running through their hearts. They weren't seeking to serve one another. They were seeking ultimately to get glory for themselves. And listen, listen. 
We do that too, don't we? Do we do that? We do that too. If you can think of it like, we can think of it like this. The desire of the flesh in each one of us is like a river. It's like a rapids that runs straight through our hearts. The desire of the flesh for self-glory in each one of us is like a rapids. It's like a class six rapids. It's the biggest kind of rapids running straight through our hearts. That, that is just like the current of the flesh. The desire of the flesh for self-glory that is running straight through our hearts. Now let me ask you, if you... If you jumped into rapids like that, how well do you think you would do swimming on your own? Okay, the answer is not well, okay? Not well. None of us could swim against that. All of us are going to be completely swept away by that current if we're trying to swim against the current of self-glory on our own, but be encouraged. Be encouraged because God has made a way for us to go against this massive current of self-glory. And here it is. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the, the love of God, the perfect love of God comes down to us in the gospel and we see it and we see that God loves us like he loves his son Jesus and he's adopted us and we believe it and experience it and we talk to God about it in prayer and he renews our mind with it. Here's what happens. It humbles our hearts like nothing else. It satisfies our hearts like nothing else. And it transforms our hearts like nothing else so that love goes back up from us to God and then out from us to others because we are so passionate about pointing others to this God who we love so much. This is true greatness. It is a servant heart that is produced by the gospel. And this is how we are empowered to go against the current, the massive rapids of self-glory. So let me ask you, can you see those rapids of self-glory in your life? Can you feel that pull towards self-glory in your life? I can. I fight against this every single day. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Can you, can you feel the desire to be made much of? Can you, can you feel the desire to be praised and respected and liked and admired and esteemed and to get the applause and to get the recognition, ultimately to get the glory? Do you feel it? Do you see it? Because sometimes we can be so deceived. And... and we can be flying down the rapids of self-glory and we're just flying down the rapids and we don't even realize it because it just feels so normal and so natural and we're doing a lot of good things. We're doing a lot of good works when all the while our true motives are the praise of man and to get glory, which is why we desperately, desperately need the Lord to show us our hearts. Amen? Lord, show us our hearts, show us our hearts even now, even now, because if we can't even see the problem, if we can't see the rapids, then we won't seek the grace that we need to fight against it, namely receiving the transforming love of God that is found in the gospel. So two questions, two questions. Here's the first one. Can you see the rapids of self-glory in yourself? Can you see it? 
Can you feel it? And secondly, and more importantly, can you see the love of God for you in the gospel? Can you see it? Can you feel it? The love of God that is able to give you the power to go against the current of the flesh. Because if we want to pursue true greatness, we must do this. We must recognize and resist the pursuit of self-glory. And that leads us right into our second point this morning. You can jot this down. Here it is, second point. If I want to pursue true greatness, I must embrace suffering for Jesus' sake. I must embrace suffering for Jesus' sake. Have a look at verse 37. Verse 37. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? James and John are asking Jesus to be uh, vice presidents of his kingdom. And Jesus, instead of rebuking them, he confronts their ignorance. And he says to them in verse 38, look at verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The cup that Jesus is speaking of here is the cup of his immeasurable suffering. The baptism Jesus is speaking of here is his baptism into immeasurable suffering. Full immersion into suffering. It's the same cup that Jesus spoke of in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's the cup of immeasurable suffering. But it was also the most glorious display of the immeasurable love of God of all time. The love of God displayed in the sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ. The suffering of being mocked, of being spat upon, of being stripped naked before a crowd, of being beaten and then whipped until he no longer resembled a man anymore. This is the immeasurable love of God for you in the gospel. It's the suffering of carrying a heavy wooden cross through the streets of Jerusalem, knowing he was about to be nailed to it. And then, and then getting to the place of his execution and laying down on that cross and having spikes driven through his hands and feet and then being lifted up in agony and in suffocation. This is the immeasurable love of God for you in the gospel. And then in the middle of that, having the wrath of God poured out upon him in full for your sins and for mine. This is the immeasurable love of God for you in the gospel. And as Jesus is thinking ahead to all of the suffering he's about to endure on our behalf and on behalf of the disciples, he looks at James and John who are asking him for glory, and he asks them a question in return. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? In other words, James and John, 
Are you, are you able to drink from the cup of suffering? Are you able to be baptized into suffering? Are you able to be fully immersed into suffering, James and John? Essentially, he's asking this. Can you be a suffering servant? Let me ask you, how do you respond to that question this morning? Are you willing to be a suffering servant for the gospel? Are you willing to be a suffering servant for Jesus' sake? Am I willing to be a suffering servant for Jesus' sake? And as I consider that question, here's, here's what I see. I see that I still have so far to go. Because I see I have this degree of selfishness in me that all too often I'm far more concerned with my own personal comfort than I am with, with serving others. Because if I, if I serve others, it might get in the way of my comfort. I might have to have a degree of suffering in my life. So what does that tell me? It tells me that I need to grow. I need to grow first in receiving the love of God for me in the gospel. And then I need to grow in loving God. And I need to grow in loving others by pointing them back to Jesus Christ. How about you? Do you see selfishness in your life? Do you see the love of earthly comfort in your life? Do you need to grow in receiving the love of God in the gospel? Do you need to grow in loving God? Do you need to grow in loving others, even if it means embracing suffering? Well, Jesus asked James and John if they were able to suffer. Look how they respond in verse 39. And they said to him, We are able. But we already know that they have no idea what they're talking about, right? Jesus already said that, so let's get that out of the way. We know they're responding in ignorance, maybe even with a bit of arrogance as well. But look what he says next, verse 39. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He looks at James and John and says, James and John, you will suffer. You will be fully immersed in suffering. And that's exactly what happened. In Acts chapter 12, we're told that James was the first apostle to be martyred, that he was killed with the sword, most likely beheaded. What about John? Church history tells us that he was probably boiled alive but that he survived and then was banished, exiled to the island of Patmos. James drank from the cup of suffering. John drank from the cup of suffering. They were both fully immersed into suffering just like Jesus said they would be. But what about their initial request for glory? Well, Jesus responds to that right here. Look at verse 40. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
meaning that God in His sovereignty has already prepared seats of honor for those who will suffer for His sake. Because God has ordained, God has ordained a degree of suffering on the path of greatness, and the greatest will suffer much. Let me say that again. God has ordained a degree of suffering on the path of greatness, and the greatest will suffer much. Kind of reminds me of what the Lord said about the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. Let's have a look at that on the screen. So what he says, he says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Now look at this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God chose how much Paul would suffer for the sake of his name. God chose how much Paul would suffer as he loved others and brought them the gospel. And I think if we're honest, I think if we're honest, in our flesh, we just don't want anything to do with that kind of suffering. But be encouraged. Be encouraged because God has made a way for our hearts to be so utterly transformed that we would actually embrace suffering for Jesus' sake. It is called the gospel because when the perfect love of God comes down to us in the gospel and we see it and we believe it and experience it and commune with God and talk to him about it and he renews our mind with it, it humbles us like nothing else and it satisfies our hearts like nothing else and it transforms our hearts like nothing else so that love goes from us up to God and then out to others because we want to point others to him by what we do and say. And that's, that's when we are willing to embrace suffering. We are willing to embrace suffering when we desire to point others to Christ because we love him and we want him to get glory. And this is true greatness. It is a servant heart that is produced by the gospel that is willing to suffer for Jesus' sake and for the good of others. So let me ask you, Are you suffering in your life right now for Jesus' sake? Are you experiencing a degree of spiritual opposition because you are seeking to be the husband or the wife or the father or the brother or the sister or the parent or the friend that God is calling you to be? Are you experiencing a degree of spiritual opposition as you seek to do gospel ministry in your life? Because listen, if you are, if you are, that is a very good sign. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because as we are increasingly committed to gospel ministry in our lives, as we are increasingly committed to personal evangelism and and seeking to share the gospel with people in our families and in our workplaces and our neighborhoods and, and in our nation and overseas, there will be opposition and we will suffer to some degree according to God's sovereign design. And listen we will endure that suffering and we will embrace that suffering uh, not by trying harder. Not by trying to be strong, but instead by receiving the love of God more and loving God more and then loving others more with an increasing passion to point them to Jesus Christ, the one we love so much. If I want to pursue true greatness, I must do this. 
I must embrace suffering for Jesus' sake. Amen? Which leads us right into our third and our final point today, which is this, which is this. If I want to pursue true greatness, I must do this. I must become a servant. I must become a servant. Have a look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, and we'll stop there. First observation here is, is notice how patient Jesus is. Jesus has been so patient with me. He's so patient. Has he been patient with you? He's so patient. Look how patient he is with the disciples. Their glory-seeking, their ignorance, their arrogance has been exposed. But notice he's not rebuking them, but rather what is he doing? He's calling them to himself that he could teach them and instruct them. Love that so much. And look what he says in verse 42. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. So he calls them to himself and he says, he says, he says guys, listen, listen, listen. Those who are considered superior in this world, those who have been given authority in this world, here's what they do. They use that authority for their own glory. But listen, you're not going to be like that. You're not going to be like that. And, and why not? Why wouldn't they be like that? Well, here's why. Here's why. Because Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem to die, and everything is going to change. The greatest display of love in the universe is about to happen. He's about to die for their sins. And then he's going, to, he's going to be raised from the dead three days later. He's going to ascend into heaven and he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will so radically transform the hearts of these men with the gospel that they will go from men who are living for the glory of self to men who are living for the glory of God. They will go from men who are pursuing worldly greatness to men who are displaying true greatness with servant hearts that have been produced by the gospel. Have a look again at verse 43. And know right now we're eavesdropping. We're eavesdropping on such a tender moment of teaching here between Jesus and his disciples. He says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So in one little sentence, Jesus takes everything that they've ever known about greatness and he completely flips it upside down. Completely flips it upside down. Look what he says. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. In other words, the one who is truly great according to God is not the one who, who seeks superiority so they can get authority, so they can get glory, but rather the one who is a servant. Servant means the lowest level of hired help. The, the one who chooses to be a servant of the kingdom, a servant of the gospel, a servant of the church, a servant of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. That is the one who is truly great. It's the one who gets low, the one who serves. That is the one who is truly great. 
And if that wasn't enough to rock their world, he continues, verse 44, look what he says. He says, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so a slave here is even lower than a servant. So he's saying the one who is a slave of the kingdom, a slave of the gospel, a slave of the church, a slave of Jesus Christ for the glory of God, that is the one who is truly first. It's the lowest, the lowest who serves is the one who is first. And again, this would have completely rocked the disciples. Everything they've learned has just been completely and totally flipped upside down. They would have been thinking, what? The servant is the greatest? The slave is first? How can this be? Ask yourself, is that how you think about greatness? Because I think if we're honest, we throw that word greatness around a lot. And true greatness has nothing to do with fame or athletic ability or intelligence or wealth or worldly success. True greatness is a servant heart that is produced by the gospel. Now ask yourself, ask yourself, is that the kind of greatness that I desire in my life? Do I want to pursue that kind of greatness? Do I want everything to change after today? Do you? I do. I do. What do we need to do then? We must become servants. We must get low and serve. We must get lowest and serve. And that's really easy to say, isn't it? But what does it actually look like? Well, it looks like verse 45. Have a look at verse 45. Jesus continues. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is what it looks like to be a servant and a slave. This is what it looks like to get as low as possible and serve. It's this, it's this. It's the king of heaven coming down and, and, and so far down and so far down that, that he becomes a human infant. Ask yourself, how far is that? How far, how far down is that? How far down is it from the throne of heaven to a manger in Bethlehem? How far down? What's the distance from the throne of glory all the way down to the cross at Calvary? How far is that? Because that's what it looks like to be a servant. That's what it looks like to be a slave. And this is the love of God for you in the gospel. A love that lowers himself from the throne of heaven all the way down to the cross at Calvary. And if Jesus humbled himself that far, immeasurable, inconceivable distance, what does it now look like in our lives to get low and to serve? If Jesus is our example and he got maximally low in order to love, maximally, what does that now look like for you and me to get low, to get under, so that we might lift others up? Well, here's what it looks like. 
It looks like having a servant heart that wants people to see and to know God and then being, being able, being willing to do whatever we can, whatever is necessary in word and in deed to point them to Jesus Christ. It means taking the lowest place and giving up comforts and embracing suffering because you are so passionate about people seeing God that they might be blessed and that he might get glory because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to think about that word ransom. Because the word ransom literally means to purchase a slave at a cost so that slave might be set free. Ransom is to purchase a slave at a cost and then, and then set that slave free, that they might have freedom. And this is why Jesus came. He came to put the love of God on display to the universe by giving his life to purchase us out of slavery to sin. Because when sin is your master and you are caught in the rapids of self-glory, then you are at the mercy of the current. You are entirely controlled, and there's nothing you can do. And you are sailing down the rapids of self-glory, heading for the waterfall, heading for the cliff, where you will sail right off the edge into eternal darkness. But when the love of God comes down, when the love of God comes down and finds us in those rapids of sin and God reaches out with his perfect love in the gospel and we see it and we believe it and we trust in it and we receive forgiveness of sins, he pulls us out of the waters of slavery to sin. He pulls us out of the current of self-glory and he sets us free. And even more than that, we are now empowered by the Spirit to go against the current of sin and serve others because we want to point others to Jesus Christ the one we love, and the one that we treasure. This is what happens in us as we experience the transforming love of God in the gospel, the perfect love of the perfect one who came down for us, the perfect love of a perfect father who has adopted us because he has chosen to love us like his son, Jesus Christ. This is the love that supernaturally produces love for God in us. This is the love that supernaturally produces love for others in us. And this is the love that produces a servant heart that is empowered to go against the massive current of sin and self that, loved ones, is what a servant heart produced by the gospel looks like. It's going against the current of sin, loving others, pointing them to Jesus Christ. And as we call the worship team up, uh, let me ask you, let me ask you, do you want to be truly great? Do you want to be truly great? Because God wants you to be great. God wants you to be great. And so if we are going to align our wills with the will of God and pursue true greatness, we must recognize and resist the pursuit of self-glory. We must embrace suffering for Jesus' sake. We must become servants. Again, again, not by trying harder, not by trying harder, not by trying harder, but by receiving the love of God in the gospel day after day after day after day that we might love God 
and love others by pointing them to Jesus Christ because this is true greatness, a servant heart that is produced by the gospel. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. And so, Father, we are here right now. And who are we? Who are we that the love of God would come down for us? Who are we, God, that the Son of God would leave the throne and come all the way down to the manger, all the way down to the cross? We are nobody. That's who we are. We are recipients of the greatest gift in the universe. The steadfast, unfailing, perfect love of God. So Lord, would you please, would you please help us to embrace the reality of how much you love us. Help us to see it afresh. And in response, God, would you produce in us such a love for you and such a love for others that desires to see them love you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.